Hello and welcome to Informed, a podcast series where you're going to hear industry experts share their thought-provoking insights and lessons in the field of medical communications. This series is brought to you by ISMAP and is generously sponsored by MedThink SciComm. My name is Rob Mathias, and I'm president and CEO of ISMAP. On today's podcast, we're welcoming back David Barrett, the CEO of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy. David and I had a great conversation our first time around. We talked about the future of medical conferences. There was so much content to cover. We asked David to come back and have another chat with us. There's a few more topics we're hoping that we're going to cover here today. One of which is um, is one that's very relevant to our listeners, and that is around the changing landscape of how we produce and how we develop medical posters. David, we're seeing a lot changing in terms of how people are producing posters, terms like posters 2.0, new visualizations. What's your experience there? And, and can you give us some insights as to what's happening in that space? Sure, happy to. Also, I want to say thank you very much for having me back. I enjoyed our conversation last time and looking forward to this one as well. Posters 2.0, or as we we titled it in 2021, our uh, digital abstract presentations. The way that we looked at this was the all virtual format allowed us an opportunity to really expand the way that our poster presenters are able to engage with audiences. Also changed some of those interactions. I think in person, the the poster hall can be a very exciting place uh, where there's a lot of activity, a lot of commotion, and it, it's a it's a very fun and exciting place where you see the you can actually watch the science being presented. And we miss that opportunity in a virtual environment, but we gain the opportunity to expand and look at things outside the four corners of the poster. So we did this here as we allowed individuals, we did this last year as well, but we allowed our abstract presenters who were offered poster presentation slots, the ability to, instead of just uploading a PDF version of a poster, to be able to upload slides and pre-recorded content. They were advised to provide presentations of 10 minutes or less of content. And so that gave an opportunity for viewers to hear very quickly what was in that abstract, what was behind it, and get a chance to hear from the author herself or himself, and then choose whether they want to engage the author in a conversation one-on-one through the chat function or through sharing email address and contact information. So it's it's interesting because as we we move to this new poster format, it gives us a lot of opportunities, I think, to have enhancements, I would say, to delivery of science. Are you finding, and this gets back to some of the conversation that we had last time, are you finding that there's different metrics that we can look at or is there um, you know a better uptake of the evidence as, as we move forward? Well, I think the jury might still be out on whether it is a better or more efficient way to share information. When we looked at our metrics, we saw that about 50% of all of our meeting participants visited the, the digital presentation hall, and the other 50% did not access it at all. It's hard to know in an in-person setting whether that number is, whether it correlates across the formats or not. But we do, we were pleased with that. You know, I don't think that we have in an in-person setting at least not at any given time, 50% of all participants in the, in the poster hall. So we were generally pleased, but we, we have an N of two to know whether this, is, uh, whether this is as effective or as popular as an in-person meeting. When we looked at the number of posters that were viewed per participant, it varied widely. We saw that every single digital abstract presentation was viewed at least once. 
And we saw a spread of views ranging from several hundred to on the low end, maybe just a maybe just a couple dozen views. And we've never looked at the the poster hall in the same way. So I don't know that we've ever done a survey of poster presenters and asked how many individuals did you correspond with? How many people do you think stopped by and looked at your poster during the poster session? So I don't know if I would I would venture to guess that that several hundred people stopping by and talking to a poster presenter would be a bit more than we might see in an in-person setting. And that maybe a couple dozen might be might be more likely. We don't have the data sets across the two different types to to determine whether it's as effective or more effective in a in a virtual environment than an in-person environment. From ASCGT's perspective, do you think that we'll continue to adapt to this new way of doing posters? You know, so hopefully we'll all get back to live meetings in the in the near future. Will you change the way in which you know you incorporate posters? We're talking about that right now. And I think that to to abandon the in-person poster hall or to abandon the digital presentation format altogether would be a bit short-sighted. The formats provide different ways to get information to perhaps different populations and different markets within our own meeting. Using the tools that we have and maximizing their benefit for poster presenters and authors to be able to get their content out to as broad an audience as possible would be our goal. So we're looking right now, how do we marry the two? How do we create opportunities for the in-person, face-to-face interaction, which we think is very valuable and was really one of the things that we love the most about an in-person meeting? But how also do we create an environment that allows for static presentation or a longer duration of the posters to be available to conference attendees? I think that's something else that is worth discussing and thinking about is that in a poster hall, at least at our meeting, those posters are up on the poster boards for one day. And at the end of the night, they're taken down. And that's it. And the poster presentation is over. Whereas in a virtual environment for ASGCT, those posters are going to stay up for 90 days and give attendees the opportunity to go back and to continue to click and continue to look at them and view those those recorded presentations for quite some time. So I think it, it creates value and opportunity for everybody that's involved we try to marry the two. Well, I like that word value because I think what our listeners are struggling with with right now is they're trying to figure out how do I get value in this in this new environment and how do I make sure that you know we're getting a good return on the education that's being provided. So certainly that's something that's top of mind for folks. Like I did in our last discussion, I, I want to switch gears again and uh, you have so many insights on on how we can deliver congresses and and uh, make sure that medical evidence is properly communicated. So I'm going to completely shift us now <laughs> away from posters 2.0 and and other ways of delivering education and actually talk about you know who we're including at medical congresses. And so if we focus a bit for a minute, and I know there's been a recent JAM article in 2020 which found that um, we don't actually have as many female speakers at medical conferences than we do compared to medical speakers. Do you think that there's, um, there'll be a change in this in the future? Is there anything that you're doing from ASCGT's point of view to try to proactively encourage female speakers? And particularly as we think about this from equity, diversion, and inclusion perspective, what's your thoughts there? Sure. So the, the first thought is that I absolutely hope that there's a shift, and I hope that that shift comes quickly. At ASGCT, have been looking at gender inclusivity for a number of years. The way that we plan our invited program is by a series of scientific and standing committees that submit proposals to a program committee. 
and then they're reviewed in mass. And each of those symposia will have anywhere from three to five speakers and one to two session chairs. And so in isolation, all of those committees are instructed to be as balanced as they possibly can across gender and also being inclusive in in other ways as well, looking at race and ethnicity, inclusivity, but also diversity of science, diversity of input, diversity of geographic location. And so when those proposals come in, the program committee looks at each one individually, and then they also look at the, the program in total. And gender balance is one of the very first things that, that we do look at. And so striving for as close to a 50-50 balance as is possible is something that our program committee does. Some years we are better at this than in others, but it, it's certainly something that stays top of mind. And on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion, this is a this is a broader goal of ASGCT in all of its programs right now. And we've recently launched a, a series of new programs looking to foster diversity, equity, and inclusion, including two new fellowships that we're offering this year and a number of other grant awards and soon-to-come mentorship programs promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion in gene and cell therapy. That's great because I can tell you this is something that's very top of mind for the folks listening to our conversation today. When you think about it, do you think other medical congresses are, are doing something similar? Do you have a sense as to how it's, it's working across the board? Well, I'm not in the inner workings of any other medical or scientific conference, but what I'm hearing from my colleagues and what I'm seeing in practice is that there's a, a greater focus on this and there's a, a general understanding that, that science and, and medicine need to do better about being more inclusive and being more diverse. That's where our listeners are netting out. And certainly for the organizations they work with, that's definitely something that is uh, that's top of mind. Along similar lines, the other trend that we're starting to see within medical conferences is how we're including patients in conference planning, how we're including patients in delivering scientific evidence. What are you doing or what's your thoughts about including patients in terms of are there various tracks that maybe are, are being contemplated or um, how are they being included uh, overall in, in the content that's being developed? Well, we do not have a specific patient or patient advocate track at our annual meeting. We do have a series of pre-meeting workshops. This year, we ran 10 pre-meeting workshops. These were half-day focused courses the day before our meeting began. And one of those was dedicated to issues that are front and center for patients and patient advocates and advancing clinical trials with the understanding that we would have a number of patient families and patient advocates who participate in that. And so we we structured fees and waived fees to help accommodate as, as many people as we could. We recognize that we have a growing number of patients and patient advocates who are involved in ASGCT. And we have leaned into this in, in recent years as well with the development of patient education and patient outreach programs within the society. Are you proactively putting patients at the podium, or is that something that just hasn't happened, or are you contemplating that in the future? In certain symposia and sessions, we are doing so. We are asking for patients and patient advocates and those that have experience in advancing clinical trials. From that perspective, we are putting them or inviting them to speak at some of those symposia. I guess when I think about it from our listeners' perspective, would you be encouraging some of the listeners who are submitting data to actually be more proactive in thinking about having patients and or patient advocates involved in presenting the evidence at this point? For our large conference, it wasn't something that we were particularly proactive in discussing with participants. But I will say we did a symposium 
for a small conference last fall on gene and cell therapies and and COVID-19. And we did work with each of our speakers to encourage them to create a patient-friendly slide, something that was a plain language interpretation of the complex data that they presented in their talk. And we relied on that to do two things, one of which is if we had questions that came in from media or lay audiences, that we had something where we could provide that. And then the second thing that we did is we proactively engaged writers to summarize and almost create a conference summary or a conference proceedings. But instead of conference proceedings for a scientific or medical audience, it was more of a, a summary that would be more easily read and understood by a lay or, or non-scientific audience. Along those lines, David, from a Congress perspective, are we interested in in proactively starting to translate some of this information? Obviously, our listeners are thinking a lot about plain language summaries and what happens with data and, and how it's basically being interpreted or translated for different audiences. Is that something that you see as kind of you'd want to have done proactively at this point? I do, actually. Something else interesting that we're seeing is the demographics of folks who are involved and attending ASGCT's meeting has gotten broader as well. So it's not just the individuals who have deep scientific expertise and experience in in designing and employing gene and cell therapies, but it's other individuals who are engaged in the field through a variety of different jobs, regulatory professionals, communications professionals, patient outreach professionals, and they are interested in the material and viewing as much of it as they can in in a short amount of time. So having those plain language summaries can serve not only as, as something that would be beneficial for patients and patient advocates, but also for either non-scientific professionals and non-medical professionals who are engaged in the field or scientific and medical professionals that are engaged in the field, but in an entirely different area. And therefore, taking a quick look at content and deciding what they want to dive into more deeply. So we see we see a number of potential benefits to interpreting or translating that complex material into something that's maybe a bit more easily digestible. David, thank you so much for your insights today. I think you've given us, uh, once again, very interesting perspectives about what's happening from a Congress perspective. Obviously, it's something that's huge on the minds of, of our listeners and um, We've probably just scratched the surface, but I really appreciate the time and your interest in helping our members to understand what's what's happening in this space. Absolutely. My pleasure, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed our time together. Thanks for listening to Informed for Medical Communication Professionals. Please take a moment to follow the show on your favorite podcast app, inform your colleagues, and rate our show highly if you liked what you heard today. We hope you'll join us at an upcoming ISMAP University webinar or even considering becoming a member of our association. Just go to ismap.org, that's ismpp.org to learn more. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and our audio engineer, Eric Colnell.